me begin this time by asking you, Christian, a question. Who and what are you devoted to? Who and what are you devoted to? As you think about that question, I think looking at a few things in in particular can help you answer that question. The question of who and what are you devoted to? Think about this. Whose words do you prize and therefore live by? Whose words do you yourself prize and therefore live by? That's one, that's one question to ask as you think about the larger question of who are you devoted to. Think again about this. Who are you partnered with? Who are your closest friends, your confidants, your advisors, your gang, so to speak? And then another one, what do you find yourself talking about? Take last night, for example. Have you spent time with friends into the wee hours of the morning? What are you talking about there? I think to some degree, the words you prize, the people that you listen to, the folks that you hang around with, the people that you are connected to, and the very things that you guys talk about reflect who and what you are devoted to. It would be, friends, an interesting experiment to think about these things and then go on to ask, like, your parents, What do you think I'm devoted to? Who do you think I'm devoted to? Be interesting to ask your friends that same exact question and to think about what their answer might be as they examine your life, even your life over this last weekend. Who and what are you devoted to? Might they say that you, as a Christian, would they say maybe that you are devoted to the most excellent thing that is Christ and his church? Well, friends, if not, I pray that this morning's passage would rouse you and rouse us all to greater devotion in fellowship to Christ and other Christians. And that is exactly what we have from this morning's passage. As we look at the early Christians there in the book of Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, I invite you to turn there with me now, we have them as an example. And this passage holds out to us the fact that the early believers there were absolute in their devotion and fellowship to Christ and other believers. We are in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And we are walking through this book, and it was written by uh, a physician, apostle, physician, apostle named Luke. And he wrote, of course, the Gospel of Luke. He records the ministry of Jesus here on earth up until his crucifixion. And then we have the book of Acts. He wrote this book as well. Sort of meant to be, you can think of it like a volume two. And he writes there about the ministry of Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, as he works through his apostles, according to the Spirit, to build up the church. Look there at Acts chapter 2, and I'll go ahead and read 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's note first here, we think about the big idea, think about the big idea again. Here we have the early believers' devotion in fellowship to Christ and other believers. That's like the big idea here. But let's note first here. Note first. Point number one. 
early believers, like their devotion was, was frankly super obvious. You see there in verse 42, and they devoted themselves. You get this idea of persistence here and what they're doing. They're devoting themselves to what? The apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So you see here that this devotion again is obvious. Now, it's not just the 12 disciples here, right? We know from, uh, actually, look at verse 41 of chapter 2. It says there, all who received his word were baptized. And how many were added to the church? It says there, 3,000 souls. Now, if you guys remember, the the, the Jews and, and converts to Judaism that were spread out across all over the empire, they had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast and then the feast at Pentecost, where God poured out his spirit here in this Pentecost. Um, now, presumably some had gone home, but we know that some, many remained here. So it's not just the 12 here. There are many people, as there are many disciples who are devoting themselves to fellowship. To fellowship. These Christians, right, they respond to Peter's sermon, they believe, they're baptized, they join their fellowship, they join the church there. So begins the church age. Now, now, hold on, guys. If all we read were these verses and we sort of lifted them out of context, we might think that this devotion here was like the dry and drab stuff of religious acts as they devoted themselves to, you know, some body of teaching, some guy's teaching, you know, or, or the fellowship. Sure, they're going to spend time with each other. Or these religious practices, this breaking of bread and the Lord's Supper and then the prayers. But that was not their devotion. Their devotion was not dry and drab. This was nothing less than devotion to their deliverer. This was devotion to their savior. They were devoted, they were devoted to the worship of the one who had intervened to save them. You guys ever hear these news stories about people who receive like organ transplants? Right, these organs transplants, and, and those patients there who are so sick, we know that if they don't get like a new kidney, for example, then they would surely face death soon. And then, and then you know, against all odds, finally a donor comes through, offers up their own organ, and the sick are given new life. We had a member here who did just this, gave her own kidney to her mother-in-law. And the stories that I've seen, the patient there goes on to great length and great effort to find the donor. To do what? It's in order to, to thank them, to really sing their praises, right? And then in tears, they thank them, and then a new friendship is formed, and it's born all throughout this great, this miserable ordeal of you have one person on one hand facing desperation and death. Then on the other, you have sacrifice and intervention. Can you imagine, can you just imagine that over the course of the rest of that one patient's life, How often she would go on and sing the praises of the organ donor. And then then can you just imagine what the family dinner conversations would be like year after year after year. You have her singing the praises of the organ donor. You have the mother who's so stressed out saying, yes, you know, we remember what happened. You got the siblings chiming in too. Friends, you realize that so it is with a Christian. And then so much more. In terms of this devotion, in terms of the singing of the praises. I mean, the Bible tells us that we were actually the sick ones. Sick and then desperate with sin under the curse of death, the Bible says. Having rebelled against our loving creator. We were the ones who were in need of divine intervention. We were the ones who were in need of a spiritual heart transplant. As we were so inclined by nature to worship ourselves as God. 
as opposed to worship our one and only true God, the living creator, who created us to be in a relationship with him in love. We know, of course, that such sin is treason against the one and only king, and so we had earned for ourselves this judgment, even eternal judgment. So, friends, you realize that we are the ones, according to God's word, who are so desperate and close to death apart from Jesus. But God, seeing that we could not change ourselves or give ourselves new hearts, and not wanting any to perish, he had compassion upon us, and he intervened. How does he do so? Well, he does this by sending his very own son to bear the judgment that we ourselves deserve. So he intervened. He intervened by the sending of his eternal son, the one who, who did not sin but lived a right, absolutely righteous life. He died on the cross for all of his people's sins. And he was, according to the book of Isaiah, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities as a wrath-bearing substitute. In the words of the song that we often sing, Come Thou Fount, he says, it says there that he rescued us from danger. How did he do that? We interposed his precious blood. In love, you see, friends, that he bore the punishment that we deserve so that everybody, including you, if you don't know Christ here today, if you're not a Christian, he bore the punishment that sinners deserve so that anybody and everybody who turns from their sins would, in fact, be saved. They turn from sin, and then as they trust in him, in his righteousness, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection, new life. Everybody who calls on his name would be saved, forgiven of their sin, declared righteous in Christ, and, and know now God as our maker, loving maker. Friends, that is the good news, and that can be your good news. These are the praises that you can sing, your own forgiveness, if you would turn from your sin and believe. This is the good news. Salvation is for all who call. They were desperate under the death sentence. But in Christ, they had been granted new life. Their debts were canceled, their sins forgiven, and they were restored to their loving creator. Who do you think was the object of their praise and all of this fellowship and all the things that they were devoted to? The apostles' teaching, in the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and then to the prayers. It's not dry religion here. The object of their praise is Christ himself. All the believers sang of the steadfast love of God in Christ. This was such a unique time in the life of God's people. There was there, look there in verse 43, an awe that came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That was that kind of awe that was going on. Certainly, undoubtedly, because people were doing miraculous things like speaking in tongues, but people were being saved. That is the truly miraculous. Every time somebody comes to know Jesus Christ here in our congregation, as there have been some over the years, that is the truly miraculous as well. And so we sing as God's divine life, his holiness, his righteousness, we as sinners know personally as our constitutions are changed, not speaking righteously, but we become more holy. We begin loving the things that God loves. That is miraculous, friends. And so when we see someone repent of their sins and believe, therefore our hearts sing the praises of Christ, the steadfast love of God in Christ. And these people here are devoted in fellowship to Christ and his people. Okay, so that's point number one. 
Their devotion is obvious. It's devotion to Jesus. Now, how did the early believers show their devotion? For the rest of our time here, we're going to look at four particular ways that really is found there in verse 42. Look there. First, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Devoted to the apostles' teaching. So this is point number two, how the early believers were devoted, right? How did they show their devotion? We were looking first here at they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Again, do not think, friends, about dry doctrine, right? These apostles were Jesus' apostles. They were witnesses to the real Christ, as we saw in chapter 1. So they were to teach what Christ himself had taught them, that Christ is the fulfillment of all God's promises and that salvation is found in him alone. You guys remember Acts 2, 36. You see there, right? What is Peter herald here? This is right, the apostles' doctrine. Christ is both Lord and Savior, Lord and Christ, the chosen one of God to bring about God's salvation plan. Again, this is the good news of Jesus received, not from man, not of man, as if the apostles are just like making things up. No, this is from God and of God, from Christ and of Christ. He is the very subject matter of the apostles' teaching. Second here, second, we're looking at fellowship. Second here, we look at fellowship. Now, I know a lot of us today, you know, we don't think about uh, fellowship in the same way that they did. You know, when we think about fellowship, we think about, you know, people getting together, maybe watching the Laker game or watching the Green Bay game. In fact, uh, maybe some of you guys today, you know, you're going to gather together to watch the Laker game. Um, But that might not necessarily actually be fellowship just because you're Christians doing the same thing like watching the game. That's not actually necessarily fellowship. Some people, like at best, right, we might think of fellowship as in um, maybe a group of people moving to advance some grand goal. You think of like key club in high school or something like that, some sort of social service club. Or you can think of like a group of people gathering together to, to glory in something. You want to glory in LeBron James, like maybe that's fellowship. Again, that's not necessarily Christian fellowship at all. This fellowship is fellowship in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They united to glory in Christ. They united to advance his cause in bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth, as Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says. So Christ, friends, Christ is the one that they shared in common. That is what fellowship is. It's a sharing of something in common. So they had partnership. They had a sharing of purpose, a sharing of goal. They were of one heart and one mind for Christ and in Christ. There is no fellowship of first century. This is no fellowship of first century backyard barbecues listen to what first john 1 3 says as john writes there to the christians i write to you so that you may have fellowship with us it doesn't stop there he goes on and he says and our fellowship is with the father and the son while this fellowship moved them to unite in their outward mission right of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth if you notice there in the passage, it also united them in their inward mission, their inward mission. That is to love one another, just as Christ commanded. They committed to meeting the needs of the believers. Look there at verses 44 and 45. It says there, and all who believed were together. You get that aspect of togetherness. And had all things in common. What were they doing? Well, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, here we have an example of how Christian love was in fact being worked out into the life of the church. They understand the giving that God has done to them in Christ, and so they too feel very free to give to others who are Christ's people. In their need, they were fulfilling Christ's command, as we know from John 13, 34, 35, 
Jesus there commands them, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. And he says there, by this, this love that you have for one another, Christians, by this love, the world will know that you are my disciples. That's what they're doing there. Now, let me just note, this is not some early form of communism where everyone decides to, everything is forced or decides to share everything equally, right? That's not this. No matter how much one works, they're not saying, look, let's just go ahead and do this and so pool our resources together so we have equal opportunity and equal outcome regardless of how much one works. Now, uh, so here's a question, though. How are we to apply this? Or how, how do we, a better question is, how do we know that we are not required by God to sell all that you have, Christian, to donate it to the church so that our resources would be shared? How do we know that? How do we know that from the passage? Go ahead and look there for a moment. Got to exercise Bible study skills. How do you know that we are not required by God to sell all that we have and donate it to the church? What is in this passage that tells us this? Well, it mentions you see there in verse 46, where are they breaking bread? They're breaking bread actually in their own homes, right? Meaning some still had homes. Not everybody sold their homes and donated to the church. Not everyone sold their homes, so one is free to sell their home and donate it to the church to meet other people's needs. But nowhere in Scripture does God actually require this. And other parts of Scripture make it clear that Christians own their own belongings and property. And so there is no dispute over whether they should or not. It's very clear that, you know, you can look at Romans chapter 16. Phoebe, she actually housed the church in her own house that she owned. And then we're going to look at how, in principle, Christians can actually own things. We look at there in Acts chapter 5. So we're not at all advocating that you guys need to, by divine requirement, sell what you have and donate it to the church. That's not what we're arguing. You're certainly free to again. We could talk about whether or not that's wise, um, but you are certainly free to do that. So when it comes to Acts chapter 2 and the selling of their homes, it was something that seems to have been done occasionally in order to meet the needs of their body in a time of persecution. In a time of persecution. And we're going to see very soon that persecution was a very real thing for these Christians. Okay, next, and thirdly, we see that they, were devote, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. This is a really interesting phrase here. Now, some think it only refers to like the regular eating of a meal. But I think, and others do as well, but to the Lord's Supper, which is what we see happening in 1 Corinthians. So just think of the term breaking bread, right? Again, we're trying to get into the mind of these apostles, these disciples who are devoting themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread as well. Like, what's going on here? Just think of the term breaking bread. If you just consider Luke and Acts together, right, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, I think the connections become clearer. So, so what are the two times where Luke records Jesus himself breaking bread right before this instance of breaking bread? First, you have Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, right? That's important. Luke chapter 22, verse 19, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Of course, it's symbolic. Do this in remembrance of me. Of course, he's foretelling about the death on the cross, and then so he goes to die on the cross. And then after he rises from the dead, he then appears to his disciples, and somehow his identity is veiled to them, and he teaches them that it was necessary to die 
they don't understand that fully, so, so they don't really know who he is. But as they continue talking over dinner, listen to what Jesus says. Listen to what Jesus does. Luke 24, verse 30 says, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then guess what happens? He says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Is there any accident that their eyes are being opened as he's breaking bread? And last time they did that, according to the Gospel of Luke, was right before. And in fact, as he was pointing to his death on the cross. So when it comes to this, I mean, how meaningful it must have been for them to remember Christ and his sacrifice in the ongoing breaking of bread. All right, fourthly, lastly, we see that they were devoted to the prayers. By the way, after we finish number four, we're going to turn to application. Fourthly, we see that they were devoted to the prayers. Scholars know that this is both public prayers. You can see there that they actually go to the temple in verse 46. So they're doing prayers. There's prayer services there at the temple. And there is an accompanying joy, a joy that goes along with them as they're rejoicing to worship God together. And then you have the, you, you have the implication here also that this is going on in private. There were prayers in the home. It almost reads as if, right, they go to the temple, they can't get enough fellowship there, and so the fellowship spills over into their homes where they can eat, as I understand it, to be like their regular daily meals, also referring to the breaking of bread here, daily, where, of course, they would be praying and giving thanks for all that God supplied, really praying to God that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just think about that for a moment. Just try and look back at Acts chapter 2. What an amazing time this was. As God was so moving in Christ, pouring out his spirit, sending out his apostles to build the church, and they were all witnesses of these things, recipients of God's grace in Christ. These early believers, they are on fire for the Lord, devoting themselves to the teaching about Christ, devoting themselves to fellowship in Christ, devoting themselves to the breaking of bread and taking the Lord's Supper that pointed them, reminded them in remembrance of Christ, and to the prayers where they prayed, praising God in Christ. And it's a devotion that would last even in the face of persecution, as we see in upcoming chapters. So as we seek to apply this together as a church, Christian, as we read about these early believers and their devotion to Christ and the fellowship, to reflect on ourselves, how is your devotion to Christ, your Lord, your King, your Deliverer, First question to ask is, do you cherish your Christ and the salvation? That is actually what lit the fire of devotion for these particular Christians. They knew that Jesus was both Lord and Christ, and they cherished their salvation in him. Christian, did you know that, I'm sure you do know this, you know that if you do not cherish Christ and the salvation he has won for you, if you don't cherish his salvation from the judgment that he has freed you from, and then the life that he has brought you into, I don't get how you are going to cherish fellowship with believers. I don't get how you're going to even care about the teaching of the apostles, which point to Christ. I don't, I don't get how you're going to love the fellowship that is experienced in Christ. The Lord's Supper as we remember Christ and praying as we praise God for Christ. That in going through the motions. But friends, you know that without heart, it's just empty action, which we know does not save. Sure, it might impress your neighbor, 
You might even feel good about yourself as you strive to live according to your own standard of righteousness, but that does nothing for you when it comes to God. Friends, if you find yourself struggling to cherish Christ, which is all of us at all at various points in our life, let me encourage you to think about and dwell upon what Christ has saved you from and what Christ saves you to. That is, he saves us from eternal judgment and hell, that which we rightly deserve, and he saves us to himself, where we, des- where we are showered with every spiritual blessing of Jesus Christ. A great passage to meditate on is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. I encourage you to think about that, right? Go ahead and write that down, meditate on it this afternoon. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It speaks of what before Christ, what we are in Christ. Let me encourage you to look at it prayerfully, memorize it prayerfully, asking God to change our heart of our devotion to him as Lord and Savior because of a growing love for him. Anthony, am I cutting in and out? Let's think then about the teaching of teaching from the word. How is your devotion to the teaching? How's your devotion to the teaching? Do you love the word of your king? We today don't have living apostles, but we have the word of Jesus Christ, right? Who Jesus Christ spoke through his apostles as they were carried along by the spirit. And God has now handed us his word. As we think about gathering together as a church, is there joy in hearing Christ's gospel? That is the power to save. Or are you right here, right now, sitting at 85 degree where they go, oh, like this again. The same old story. The same old story about God's covenant love for me and Jesus Christ. Can you just imagine if I was to say that and have that attitude towards my wife's covenant love to me? Can you imagine if your parent was talking about rejoicing in, the, in your very own birth and how much they loved you when you were a baby all the way up until you left their house? And even right now, you're like, oh, this story again about your covenant love to me? This is ridiculous. Let's just move on. <laughs> what would your opinions be of me? If you said that, what would your opinions be of yourself? I get that at times we are spiritually sleepy and complacent at times. And then on top of that, our hearts are hardened by sin. But did you know, friends, that God's chosen instrument that softens our hearts when they are hard is actually hearing his word? When his word goes out, that his spirit goes out as well and conforms us more into his image. Friends, you realize that given that is the answer to hard hearts, I take great hope in this. Sometimes I might have a hard heart as well. But I take great hope in this because the prescription and treatment for a hard heart is in some ways really quite simple. It is hearing and humbly submitting to the word, praying that God would change us by his spirit. So friend, if you know that your love for Jesus is slipping, clear out time to sit under the word with a prayerful attitude, praying the words of Psalm 119 verse 18. Open my eyes, please God. Because my heart is hard, that I may behold the wonderful things uh, in your law. John Piper has put together a wonderful resource that addresses this very issue. It's entitled, When I Don't Desire God. It's a book. You can also search on YouTube. He has six uh, lectures or sermons. They're like 30 minutes each. Really useful, When I Don't Desire God. Friends, if you do not desire God or if you find yourself struggling with that, that is a great thing to listen to. I encourage you to get together with other friends, read that. Listen to it. Talk about it. It's a fantastic resource there. Another practical thing to do is to study and pray the passage 
that is going to be preached next week, right? It readies your heart so that you would hear the word. And if you guys are studying that and talking about it with your family, you're talking about it with your friends, you can ask yourself, well, how are we going to apply this? And then you come to hear the preaching of the word, which next week is Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. There, the spirit is going to move. And it helps you learn how to submit to the word humbly, asking God to change your life. How about your devotion to the fellowship? Your devotion to the fellowship. Again, here's another question, guys. Who are you at, at heart with? Who are you one with heart? Who are you one mind with? It's worth asking. What if you realize that you really have thrown in your lot with those who are of the world and not so much with those who are of Christ? Who are your closest confidants and your advisors? Are they those who love Jesus and his will or are they those who reject the Lord and Savior? Now, I'm not saying, of course, that those who do not know Jesus can never give good advice about all sorts of stuff. That is not what I'm saying. I have non-Christian friends, and I ask them for advice about all sorts of things, right? But when it comes to them, and they know this too, right? They'll tell me this, right? If we were to ask our non-Christian friends, I did this one time in high school, and I said, hey, you know, what do you, what do you think about this? And he said, well, actually, I can't comment about that because I don't even know Christianity. Like, I'm not even a believer. When you think about your non-Christian friends, right, if you are one at heart with them about the most intimate, most important things of your life, like the very purpose of your life, I just don't know how they're going to give advice on the most important things of your life. What it means for you to submit to Jesus according to his word. What it means for, for you to commit yourself to the church more than anybody else in terms of purpose and teaching and fellowship. Naturally so, right? We should be thinking about this. They don't have the spirit of Christ. But Christians, we share the same Lord, right? All of us here, we share the same Lord, if you're a Christian. We share the same spirit, and we take our cues from our God-given Bible. And here in this church, though we come from different backgrounds and different cultures, we are nevertheless united to each other as we are united in Christ. In Christ, all of us have been brought into the fellowship. And so in our gatherings, we seek to preach the word every single Sunday. This is how we learn to be discipled by the apostles' teaching, by Christ teaching himself. This is actually the primary way that you, Christian, are discipled through the heralding of God's word when the church gathers. But as mentioned in Acts chapter 2, baptism and the Lord's Supper are also important ways we can grow in fellowship with Christ and one another. So let's transition now to think about the Lord's Supper. Transition to think about the Lord's Supper. If you think about baptism being the door into the church, right, entrance into the family, metaphorically speaking, the Lord's Supper is like the ongoing family meal where we come together to remember Christ's love for his people. And then also where we pledge our love to him through the eating of bread, which symbolizes his torn body, and then through the drinking of the cup, which symbolizes his spilled blood. So, members of the church, have you made it a point to attend this ongoing family meal? We're going to have a moment soon to take the Lord's Supper together. But previously, the elders had it. we We were doing this in the evening, in the evening service on Sundays. We're going to return to that eventually, but for now, we have it in the morning. Did you make it a point to attend this ongoing family?
Because, you know, this Jesus guy, he sure made a point to come for you, right? To break his body for you and to spill his body for you. Did you make it a point at all? To pledge your ongoing love to him? Or was it just something of an afterthought? Something that takes place after all the other meals you can have with your friends, all the games that you can watch with your friends. Well, did you know, friends, that he calls us to come to his family meal where he presides as Lord in the breaking of bread and in the pouring and drinking of the juice. He calls you and he calls us to do this in remembrance of me. Now, I get that sometimes, you know, we we learn. Sometimes we don't know, and so we learn about what it is and the meaning of it. But as you enter into the meaning of it, how awesome is it that we as a church get to come together with our very senses? He involves us in this aspect of worship to join together to remember his death on the cross, his breaking body, and the pouring out of his blood so that you, Christian, could be secure in his love. Maybe as you think about this question, you find yourself too much of the same heart with the world. Happy to skip out on the Lord's Supper in order to break bread with others who may not really care or recognize Christ as Lord. Maybe in your mind they are actually more important to you. If that is so, I hope you're taking this teaching and you're you're eating it, you're devouring it. Pray that in that moment, in these moments, We would never be so uncaring and ungrateful and unthankful to simply disregard the blood of his covenant shared for us. Fourthly and lastly, we have the prayers. We talked a bit about prayers when it comes to chapter 1. Already in this service, there have already been two prayers. As John prayed earlier in the prayer of praise, and then as I prayed earlier in the pastoral prayer, you, friends, you realize that every time somebody prays from the front, we hope that you all are praying actively as you amen the prayers, as you say, truly, truly, it is so, and you are learning to pray. Are you devoted to the prayers, even as John Kim prayed earlier, as I prayed earlier? Did you apply yourself and attend the prayers in your actual amens? Were you active in learning to pray through your prayers? You know, guys, our corporate prayers are intended for you not just to listen to, but for you to take, and then for you to echo in a meaningful, genuine way in your own prayer life, in your own families, with those you spend time with. Well, as we conclude, as we look at these verses, we see their devotion to Christ and his people. And in these different aspects of their worship to Christ and in their community life in Christ, right, they did it all, as it says there in 46 and 47, look there, with gladness and generous hearts, praising God. Does that reflect your worship and fellowship with the church, Christians? I know for many it does, and for that I am so thankful, as you are an encouragement to me, as I know that this is your testimony, that this is your worship. Praise God for that. But if you are one who knows that it isn't the case, let me encourage you, just simply talk to your friends. We've all been there before not clearly understanding as much as we could the importance of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. This was no empty religion for them. This was worship in spirit and in truth. Worship of the one and true living God, Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. God himself was on the move in Christ and in his spirit. He is the one who saved them. 
it was he who was, as it says in there in verse 47, the one moving in his sovereign grace, adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. May they be our example today. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, God, we ask that you would convict us of our sins even as we look here at this passage. We know, Lord, that none of us, not even these disciples, love you as we ought. But God, we pray that by your spirit we we would have more of your mind, that we would see more of your beauties and more of your excellencies and so be moved to glorify you all the more as we look at Christ, the Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior. Help us comprehend his person and his majesty and his glory and his honor. Help us comprehend his incarnation and his humility as he left the glory that he deserved and as he took on flesh in order to suffer at the hands of flesh. Help us to comprehend your sacrifice, Lord Jesus. As you died on the cross, you, the righteous, died for the unrighteous, that is us. And so, God, we pray that you would move our hearts to humility, to be humbled before you and be undone as we consider our own sin and how we ourselves earned just judgment from you and how we ourselves rebelled against you. Help us also, Lord, as your people, to comprehend your forgiveness and your love for us. That even though we are the unrighteous, yet, Lord, you loved us and died on the cross for us. Help us, help us to comprehend more your unfathomable love. Help us to comprehend just how far you went to secure us to yourselves and how high you brought us up as you seated us at your right hand in the heavenly places as we were seated with you where you would shower upon us every spiritual blessing in Jesus. Help us to comprehend, Lord, as well, that even right now in these prayers, even where our hearts are sluggish, God, you intervene. Christ, you intervene for us as our great high priest, always faithful, always caring, always identifying. And so, Lord, we pray that we would marvel at your grace and we would worship you for all the days to come. In your name we pray, amen.